It is good to be back. I very much feel sent from this community, so it's always just a great pleasure. I was telling um, Pastor Andrew, as I walked through the front door, it all looks the same. I mean, the church building all looks the same as it did um, when I was regularly here seven years ago, I think. Oh, no, maybe 10 years ago. Pastor Calvin, when I was on, on campus, it was 15 years ago. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, so time is moving, but the church looks the same. And that, to me, is actually a kind of a great comfort in a world of so, so, so many uh, transitions and changes. I bring you greetings from the church in Washington, D.C. Um, my husband was talking to him this morning. He said there's a very big protest that's going on about the executive orders uh, this weekend. And I think one of the things that's interesting in this season is a question of asking, what does it mean uh, to to follow a God, a God who cares about justice, and how does that affect our faith? So we're going to do a little bit of a hop, skip, and a jump through a couple of different things, um, and I'm going to share with you a bit of, of my story. Uh, most recently, um, I've been working with International Justice Mission, and so it gave me a chance to do kind of a deep dive on issues of human trafficking, but I do want to start us off in kind of like a bigger uh, picture of God's heart for the world. Um, you know, uh, Calvin mentioned that a few years ago, um, I guess 15 years ago, I was on campus at UC Berkeley and um, doing campus staff there. And um, I, I began to notice a renewed engagement among the students around justice issues. And, you know, I thought, I think this is just Berkeley. I think it's like a Berkeley thing. Um, but then when I moved on to work with the Urbana Missions Conference, we began to look at trends among young adults in the American church, uh, 17 to 35-year-olds, we began to see um, a renewed engagement among justice issues. And so we're seeing a trend that was happening out in Berkeley also begin to kind of happen across the whole entire country. Um, now, I was a little bit wondering about this because I also at the same time was recognizing that um, sometimes being a Christian is a little bit unpopular. And I was wondering if those things, interest in, in justice was actually somehow related to a, a sense of feeling that identified as a Christian was a little bit unpopular. Um, I mean, I, one of the things that I loved about being on campus at Berkeley is it was, it's a very open-minded campus. Um, and you all can tell me if, if it has changed a lot since then. So what I'm telling you is kind of a frozen-in-time moment in 2005 or two, uh, between 2000 and 2005. You know, I think the thing that I loved about Berkeley is you could say the craziest things and no one would blink an eye. Like, no one would care, no one would blink an eye. I could come in and I could say, I raise porcupines and skunks to uh, release in preschools and uh, folks uh, for the elderly, and people would be like, that's cool, no judgment. I'm not gonna say whether that's a good or a bad idea, that's cool, you do that. You raise skunks and porcupines. But, in the context of meeting with other people on the campus, if you tell them that you're a Christian, they would stop and they would look, and they would look at you and go, how could you? How could you possibly be a Christian? So I wondered sometimes if some of my students were pursuing justice because some of the other things related to faith were a little bit less popular on campus, like things like a Jesus who came to save us, a Jesus who will return to come and judge the living and the dead. So with my evidence that demands a verdict in one hand, I set out to win the UC Berkeley for Christ. And while I could argue with an atheistic apologist, they weren't asking the questions that I was really prepared to answer. The question and the conversations had changed from, how do you know it's true, to, is your Christian God a good God? The conversation had changed from, is the Bible reliable, to, doesn't your God hate women and people of color and gay people? And the one thing that struck me in those conversations, the one comment that someone said was, people do truly terrible things in the name of religion. So while I was concerned that young people were avoiding something by engaging with justice, I also began to realize that God had deposited in this generation something that reflects his very own heart a heart and a yearning for the most vulnerable. And the same passage for justice really matched the times because it was matching kind of a renewed uh, sense of awareness of our role as kind of global citizens in an entire world, right? Um, I think the young people's passion for justice testifies in the public square that the Christian God is a good God. That the, that the Christian God is a good God, a compassionate God, and an able God. 
The pursuit of justice is the anti-story to that claim that religion morally corrupts people. The pursuit of justice is the anti-story to that. I, was see, I saw how pursuing justice is actually declaring God's character in the public square. He is a God who goes after the one lost sheep. He's a God who stops for the ostracized, bleeding woman and heals her. He's the God of the wells, the marketplace, and the synagogue. And I think one of the things that I have loved is getting the chance to uh, kind of have a front row seat. Uh, Calvin had sort of mentioned my uh, short attention span. And so I think one of the things that's resulted is I've had an opportunity to have kind of a front row seat at some of the different places where God is working in different ways. And I think that's been, um, it's extraordinary to see what God is doing through people and through small groups and through churches to really participate in his work of justice. I love watching the catalytic transformation that comes with discipleship, the pursuit of justice, and evangelism. It's, um, it's an amazing thing what God does in people and also through people. So I think it's important for Christians that if they truly believe and worship and follow and declare that their God is a powerful and an able God, that their faith has the ability to engage with some of the world's toughest issues. My justice be journey began on something called the Global Urban Track. And so this is a poverty immersion that we used to take students from the different campuses. We used to take them um, on a, a five or six week immersion where you get to learn from uh, church leaders in different communities, uh, urban poor communities. And it's a fantastic program. But that was the beginning of my justice uh, journey. We, we started out um, in the slums outside of Nairobi, in the garbage village in Cairo, and then ended up in the red light district in Bangkok. And I think one of the things that I saw in the red light district of Bangkok really broke my heart because um, I saw neighborhoods that were set up to sell Asian women uh, for different people from different parts of the world. Uh, there was the German neighborhood, so it's Thai women who are being sold to German customers and all the signs were in German, beer houses, beer gartens, and all this kind of stuff. There was the neighborhood that was set up uh, for Japanese clients, so it's Thai women being sold to Japanese clients. There was the one that was set up for the Spanish-speaking folks. It was, uh, it was extraordinary for me as an Asian woman to see that. And my heart broke. My heart absolutely broke um, because of the women that I met there. But at the same time, I think one of the things that was amazing to me was God's ability to hold each of those stories in his hand and so many more that I never even knew of. Well, I came back from there, and I returned to, UC, uh, to, to Berkeley, lived over kind of on Ashby. And that's when I feel like I had sort of a, a rude awakening. Um, I would go along Shattuck Avenue, and after having been gone that summer, I began to see things on Shattuck that I had never, ever noticed before. There were storefronts that had fogged-in fronts, uh, things that would sort of ambiguously be described as massage places. Um, I would drive along San Pablo, and I saw things in the nighttime that I had never, ever, ever noticed before. Um, the different kinds of, let's call them, illicit transactions and businesses that were happening over there. I think one of the things that was shocking to me was um, there used to be a restaurant named Passant's. Do you, did anybody ever? This is like real old news. No. Yeah, South Asia. Were you a student at Berkeley when it was there? No, Passant's. Um, so it was, this, it was this Indian restaurant. It was an okay Indian restaurant. It wasn't great. But then um, somewhere, I think around like um, late 90s, early 2000s, they got busted for trafficking people and um, came to find that some of the people who worked in the restaurant uh, were actually, had been trafficked into the U.S. against their will and were being held there. Um, and that's when I began to realize that the things that I had seen overseas are actually happening here in my very own neighborhood. Um, and it was as close as the people who were in the same restaurant that I was. It, 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 was, it took it from a concept to something that was actually very real and here in my, in my everyday world. So that was, um, that was basically how I began to begin this journey to be aware of uh, human trafficking and slavery in specific. Um, and basically my beginning awareness to what is now the second largest illegal enterprise in the world. It's the second largest business in the world uh, in terms of an illegal enterprise. So if you wanna go ahead and uh, go onto the first slide. 
the first largest illegal enterprise in the world uh, has to do with the buying and selling of drugs. Uh, so that's, it's a, it's a huge industry. The second used to be uh, the buying and selling of illegal firearms. Um, but that has been uh, surpassed by uh, human trafficking and modern-day slavery, which is now a $150 billion industry. Um, a firearm you can sell once, uh, but a person you can actually sell over and over and over again. Um, the next slide shows that the UN estimates that there are about 2 million children globally that are exploited in a global uh, commercial sex trade. Um, about 45... You can, you can change that uh, slide. Uh, today, there are about 45 million people who are caught in human trafficking and modern-day slavery. So there are more people who are enslaved today than there ever have been in 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade combined. And that's today. That's on our watch. If you look at the countries who are mostly involved, I think the thing that to me that was shocking, the top countries are India, China, Pakistan, and Russia. Three of the four largest are Asian. So uh, trafficking and modern-day slavery are a huge industry and a huge problem. Um, it's also a big concern in the United States. Um, it's, a, it's a big problem. You can see it in truck stops that are happening. You can see it um, in some of the personal ads in some uh, different online papers and that sort of a thing. It's, uh, they, they estimate that there are hundreds of thousands of folks who are both trafficked into the United States and as well as around. One thing that I do want to make note of is that if you take all the people who are involved in trafficking and slavery in the United States and in all of Europe, and you combine all of those, it does comprise less than 1% of the people who are trafficked and enslaved. So I think it's really important as Christians that we both are involved in issues globally and in our neighborhood. Sometimes it can be easier to be involved in something that's really remote and far and that you don't have to look at. But I think it's good for us to have a discipline to be involved in the things that are affecting our neighborhoods and present. But also, I think as Americans, as the country that has some of the most resources at our disposal, as a country has an enormously powerful passport, that we, as we participate as global Christians, we also need to be participating in how these issues are playing out in the global sector and in the global space. So human trafficking, slavery, bonded labor, forced labor, um, I'll dive a little bit into some of the, the technicality of what some of those words uh, mean. Uh, I'm going to focus on a couple of specific types of exploitation. Um, but the trafficking, uh, just a real rough definition, but we're going to have a workshop a little bit later if you're looking for something really fun to talk about this afternoon. Um, but we'll go a little bit more into stuff uh, this afternoon. But um, trafficking, uh, the trafficking of individuals, so that is the buying and the selling of people. Uh, and it doesn't, you don't actually have to move them, but it, it has to do with the buying and selling of people. Um, there's the exploitation of minors, and that's where you uh, use minors to provide services. Um, bonded or, or forced labor. Uh, bonded or forced labor. So like a bonded labor means uh, someone gives somebody a, a 20 bucks, and then they say, you have to work this 20 bucks off, and you have to work uh, you know, until it's all gone, and usually what that does is uh, those people end up in, um, in bondage for multiple generations. Uh, it's basically, it's a ruse. There's no way uh, to actually pay off the debt. Um, you can see uh, that with regard to um, people who are tricked, but also people who kind of willingly enter into um, a lopsided transaction. And then we're, uh, the other types of exploitation that fall under this have to do with people who are trafficked in order to become domestic workers. So that might be like someone who is, uh, we see that a lot in the Washington DC area, people who are invited to come take care of homes, take care of children, and then have their papers taken from them and are un unable to leave. Uh, hard labor, sweatshops. Uh, that sort of a thing. Um, the thing that's really tricky is sometimes the trafficking is related to a totally legitimate business. Um, and then child soldiers would be another ca category of exploitation. So sometimes these things go together. Um, sometimes people are trafficked into bonded labor, or sometimes people are trafficked into uh, slavery. Um, trafficking always leads to slavery, but slavery um, does not always mean that somebody was trafficked. Uh, but anytime there's a trafficking situation, the result of that always ends up in a form of slavery. So some of these terms are kind of confusing, um, and sometimes people use those things uh, interchangeably. My mother, uh, my mother who, she likes to brag, 
And uh, my husband was uh, going to Sweden in order to do a seminar uh, to train people on uh, fighting trafficking. But she was just so proud of her son-in-law who is traveling to Sweden. So I was, sit I was sitting in the kitchen and I was listening to her talk and she was sort of bragging to her friend about her, her son-in-law who's going to be going and doing this uh, interesting thing. So she says, my son-in-law is going to Sweden for work. And you know, the kind neighbor is like, oh, what kind of work does he do? My mother goes, human trafficking. <laughs> and in my head, I'm screaming, anti-human trafficking. My husband does not buy and sell people. He's doing anti-human trafficking work. But I think these, these phrases and these different words can be very, very confusing. Evangelism is about pointing people to God. Right? It's just about interpreting the ways that God is pursuing people. Evangelism is about pointing people to God and proclaiming the one who reconciles all things to himself, the God who rescues and the God who saves. Discipleship is about becoming more and more like Jesus and hanging out with the people that Jesus hangs out with, doing the things that Jesus would do, and developing your friendship with Jesus. And then pursuing justice declares the character of God in the public square. And for me, one of the applications of that has been my engagement with the fight against human trafficking. Today, justice is used to describe many, many things, right? From feeding programs to digging wells, from shoes to putting an X on your hand. Justice is trendy, but it also, I will say, is but half the gospel. It is the demonstration of the power of the gospel that must also be paired with the declaration of the power of the gospel. So let me tell you a little bit about some of the folks that I have met and some of um, the people that, to me, have kind of made uh, human trafficking and slavery very real. A couple of years ago, um, I went to the IJM office in Ghana and uh, to a region that's called Lake Volta. And Lake Volta is this really, really huge lake. Um, it's the largest man-made lake in the world. And so we're out there, and on Lake Volta is a very large fishing industry. So they have boats that go out, um, young, young boys that work on these boats. They drop down their nets. To me, it felt like something out of biblical times. The boat pushes out, they drop the nets, the nets come up full of fish, they clean it, and all that kind of stuff. So we're there, um, and many of the, boat, the boys on these boats are actually trafficked. Uh, so traffickers go to the coast, they promise a cow or a job or some of money to the families. They take these young boys, and the ideal age is between the age of four and seven. They're small enough to be helpful. They don't eat too much, but they're not, they're not so big and not so troublesome. So they particularly look for boys who are between four and seven. My son Michael is six, and I saw my son Michael in the face of all the boys that I saw. The boys, they go onto these boats, and they clean the nets, and they fish early, early in the morning. They're up at four. They go out into the boats before things get very bright, and they drop in the nets. One of the most horrifying things that I found out while I was there is that oftentimes these boys do not know how to swim. There's no Saturday swim lessons at the Y. There's no private pools to be taught in. These boys actually don't know how to swim. And yet they are on these boats day in and day, night, uh, day and night. And sometimes the nets get caught on a rock at the bottom of the lake. And so their owner says to them, go and unlodge the net. It might be 10, 20 feet deep. So the boys, they have to jump in, and they don't know how to swim. Sometimes the boys don't come up. Some of what I saw was horrifying. Um, the, the signs of the scars and the beating and the treatment that they got, um, the signs of uh, not having proper nutrition. Um, these are forgotten boys that most of the world does not see but our God is a God who sees things that are invisible. There are similar, similar violations that happen in places like the Thai fishing industry, um, which has recently been in the news. Uh, the, the fish on Lake Volta will probably not make it to your table, but the fish and the shrimp in the Thai industry are coming to restaurants and grocery stores that are in our neighborhoods here. So I carry the pictures of these young boys who remind me so much of my son, and I think of them. I was recently in Nepal in November, and one of the things that uh, people see, uh, so it was a gathering of people who were uh, fighting trafficking from India, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. 
we were doing some scripture study and, and, and working there. And one of the things that people saw uh, in one of the villages in northern India was that uh, the villagers would celebrate the birth of a child. And it's like, okay, that's, that's wonderful. I particularly get excited when I hear that people are happy about the birth of a daughter, especially in an Asian context. I was like, that's great. But then I, my, I was crushed to find out that the reason that they celebrate the birth of a girl is that they know that they can sell her to a local trafficker for money. I think of all the other reasons why people should celebrate the expectation of a baby girl. The clothes are cuter. There's fun things that you can do with daughters. You know, the baby showers, uh, the different activities that one can think of. But imagine what the situation must be in the, in the community when the birth of a baby girl is celebrated because you know then you can sell her. I heard stories and stories uh, similar to this, of a young girl and a mother. Both of them were illiterate. They were told that they were being taken to Kathmandu. Um, but it turns out uh, that as they, were, as they were being driven to this big city, the daughter, um, who had just a little bit of school, and she said, I don't think those signs say Kathmandu. Uh, it turns out that they were taken into India, into one of the red light districts in Mumbai. There they were separated and they were sold. Heard story after story of men and women and children. A story of a man who bought 500 people from traffickers in order to make bricks. I heard stories of uh, men and women who were tricked into slavery um, for something small like a $25 medical emergency loan. Or another family who borrowed $50 so that their son could get married and didn't realize that that was gonna turn into generation after generation of enslavement. People living in huts, unable to leave, forced to work, generation after generation. I wish that I could tell you that these stories were rare and that I picked the worst ones to tell you, but actually um, these are just everyday and middle of the road examples. These cases are too common. One day it's a brick kiln, the next it's a sand mine, another day it's a clothing dye store, a brothel, an entertainment bar. There are more people in slavery today than there were in 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade combined. This is today. This is our watch. Church, this is happening in our world. Slavery is also, by the way, illegal in every single one of these countries that I've talked to you about. So all these things that are going are absolutely, they're great laws on the books, and it's illegal. Why are we surprised at the extent of this problem. These things are invisible, right? These things are invisible to the world. But here in this room, we are people who are used to seeing invisible things, right? We're used to seeing the invisible spiritual reality that exists behind our everyday stories because we serve a God who is able to see invisible things. People being trafficked might be invisible to the world, but they're very visible to God. Let's take a look at Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 6 to 7 says this. And this passage is being, um, it, the people in this passage are people who have been very faithful to God. They've been trying hard to do the right things, to worship God, but they were finding that their faith has become very dry. Uh, their faith has become a little bit dried out, and they're kind of feeling like, God, where are you, and why don't you, why don't you listen, why don't you respond? Um, so this is God's response to them. Isaiah 58, 6 to 7, it says, is not this the fast that I choose. So God is redefining the fast that he chooses. To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin. We can see here how God is redefining what the fast is. So the fast used to be something that the people would do as an act of like kind of a personal devotion, right? As an act of worship. It was something where they would abstain from food or drink um, in order to kind of prepare themselves or in order to uh, invest in their vertical relationship with God. But what we see God do, and we see that the prophet is connecting this, is that the spiritual act of fasting is actually being redefined in terms of their horizontal actions and relationships with the people around them. So it's not just, oh, I'm being spiritual and, um, and, and, and having a good devotion, but I can do whatever I want with people. 
what, what we're seeing is a connection between the vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. This is a picture of religion not corrupting, but a, a spiritual devotion that's lived out in the reality of the world around them. This is a picture of a community living in a way that testifies to the character of God and that declares that God is good, compassionate, just, and able. I think sometimes we look at these words and we spiritualize them. To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, the spiritually oppressed, um, to break every yoke, uh, to feed the hungry, you know, the spiritually hungry. But actually, it's not talking about just the spiritually hungry. It's talking about bonds of injustice, thongs of yoke, like this is real life things that are happening, right? Um, we see that in the passage, the prophet is taking something that is intensely spiritual and, and sort of uh, reserved just for God and connecting it to people's everyday actions. Let's read on. In verse 8, it says, Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you, and the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday, right? What an extraordinary promise, right? This is being spoken to a community that was sort of saying, we're doing all these things, God, but you don't seem to notice. And here it is that God is actually saying, those things that you're desiring, those are good things. And I will satisfy your needs. I will be present to you in parched places. And he's connecting, uh, God is connecting these things with how it is that they are treating their neighbors. And it's not just their neighbor, but they said, if you bring um, your kin inside your home. So it's not saying, oh, those homeless, but saying, oh, those folks who are family who are living on the street and bringing them in. Then their light will shine like the noonday in darkness like the bright Middle Eastern noonday sun. But then the best part is coming. So let's continue into the passage. It says, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to live in. Right? So this community who is saying, God, where are you? Where are you? He's saying, I am here. I am here and I am present when you are welcoming in the hungry, when you are sheltering the people who don't have a place, when you are breaking the yoke of oppression. I am there and I am in that. And ironically... It's not when you are, are chasing after your own needs, but as it is when you are participating in this beloved community of justice, that those very things that you are longing for will get satisfied by God himself. But the thing that I really love about this passage is if you look at the present, the past, and the future that's listed in this passage. And I think that to me is actually the great hope. So if you look at the past, right, what... What is the past? In verse 12, it says, your ancient ruins will be rebuilt, right? So it's a reference to the things that have been destroyed in the past, the ancient ruins. And then there's a, a, a mention of the future. It says, you will raise up the foundations of many generations. So it's talking about in the future, the many generations. And the, the acts that are in the present are this list of all of these things loosening the bonds, undoing the thongs of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, feeding. There is something that's absolutely remarkable about something that is done in the present that has the ability to rebuild the past and set up a new foundation for the future. That there's something about our God. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it happens. I think we need to be a little bit mysterious in this. But there's something about that a work of justice and faithfulness done in the present has the ability to rebuild the past and to set up a brand new foundation for what is to come for future generations. And that, to me, is actually the big hope. Because when I look at these different justice issues, it's easy to kind of go, this is huge. This is huge. This is big. It's never, ever, ever going to change. But that's not the God that we serve. 
We serve a God who can take an act of something in the present, can do that to rewrite a story from the past and set up a new reality for generations to come. That is the God that we serve. And that to me is the hope, the hope of a powerful God who is able to do all of these things. So it can be easy for me to give up, to look at injustice and go, that's just too big, that's just too hard. It's easy for me to look at the problems in our society and go, that's just too big, that's too hard. It's easy to, it's tempting to give up and to just kind of think about, okay, I'm just gonna care about my world. I'm gonna shrink my world, I'm gonna care about my youth group, about my church, about my neighborhood and my friends. But then I look at Isaiah 58, and I see how God can take a small act of faithfulness done today and rebuild ruins, and a small act of faithfulness done today and can set a new foundation that can change the future for my children and my children's children and for future generations, and that to me is the great hope. Is there an invitation from God to you in this? Is there a place where God is inviting you to give you a front row seat at his work of justice and kingdom building in the world. Let me give you an example of what this one small act of justice uh, looks like. Um, I was recently in the IJM office in Guatemala. And in Guatemala, I was able to attend something called the pinning ceremony. Um, it was an event that's like way more fun than that name implies. It's a, it's a pizza party, it has clowns, it has crafts and coloring. Um, it's a totally ordinary kids party, uh, totally ordinary kids party, um, except for one thing. After the, the clown gets up and gets everyone to do a silly dance and everyone has kind of stuffed themselves with pizza and sodas, uh, a social worker calls up each client and gives them a pin. It, uh, the pin on it says, hero. And it's, it's a hero pin. And they say a few words about that child. These kids are receiving a hero pin because they have just testified in court about some of their extraordinary experiences as a survivor. These children are asked to testify. These children, they're this big, are asked to testify before a judge, a prosecutor, a defense attorney, and in front of the person who violated them. It's a room full of adults, and these children are asked to testify in this court. They're asked to testify in a case that most people are not even convinced is a crime. They're asked to testify in a situation in which, to be honest, that judge may do nothing, like nothing may actually happen. A five-year-old is asked to testify in front of all of these people and in front of the person who actually may have sold them or violated them, just sitting 10 feet in front of them. These children have to speak unspeakable things, incomprehensible things in front of a judge. And for this, the team gives them a pin, a hero pin. It's a way of saying, you are not a survivor. You are not a victim. You are a hero. You are a hero. You are not defined by these things that have happened to you. You testified, and regardless of the outcome, you are a hero. So that's why the social workers give these kids this hero pin. So the ceremony begins. I saw three kids, same school uniform, go up. It turns out there were three clients from the exact same family. I saw a woman, she was like a girl, really, and when her name was called, she handed over her in infant and went up to go see her pin. I saw girls and boys, each younger and younger than the one before, go up and I wept through the whole entire ceremony because I knew that each pin meant that each of those kids had experienced something that was a horror beyond horrors. It was the voice of one of the social workers as she gave that pin to, um, to her client that hit me the most. She said, she said to that person, she said, you are a voice. You are a voice for all the others. And the definition that I used to have of voice, which was about this big, <laughs> It rolled over and it died. Till then, voice to me had meant speaking up, yelling if needed, when others stepped on my community, when it stepped on my gender, when it stepped on, uh, on something that was important to me. That's what voice meant. Voice was a rallying cry to get others to speak up about injustice, to get others to speak up and to march. But far away, in a conference room in Zona 1 in Guatemala City, amidst the smells of greasy cheese, pizza, and spilled soda, I saw a five-year-old embodiment 
a voice. Hero is not a person in a cape. Hero is not a pastor who leads a big church. Hero is a child, five years old, maybe six, who speaks about terrible and private crimes. A hero speaks even when the stigma for him or her is probably bigger than the stigma for the person accused of the crime. A hero is someone who speaks even when it's hard and not likely to make a difference. But that to me is the picture of the faithfulness that God uses in Isaiah 58. It's that small act of faithfulness. It's that child speaking truth that somehow, I don't know how it is that God does it, that God is able to take that small act of faithfulness in that moment, in that present moment, and use it to rebuild ruins and to set up a new foundation for future generations. Fighting injustice testifies to God's character, it testifies to the victims, to the people who do the crimes, and to society as a whole. In a relativistic world, like the one that we live in, people will actually say exploitation is wrong, trafficking is wrong, slavery is wrong. And people will say, no, actually, that's wrong. You can get people to argue you with you a long time about relative truth, about God, about politics. You can argue a long time about whether or not there's a God, but try to argue with someone about whether it's not, whether or not it's okay to buy and sell people. You're gonna have a really short conversation, right? Is it okay for someone to own somebody else? Is it okay for someone to buy and sell another person? It's a pretty short conversation, but it's that absolute stance on something like human trafficking and on slavery. It's that absolute wrong that actually opens the door for an absolute right and an absolute good God. People will accidentally have a conversation about absolute truth when you talk about justice. So it's this agreement that trafficking is not right that opens up a conversation to a good God. It takes all sorts, though, to participate in God's work of fighting for justice in the world. It takes all of us acting in big and in small ways, being faithful in the places where God has placed us, and doing what we can. One of the extraordinary things that I've been able to see is how God is rising up individuals, small groups, and whole churches to be doing some amazing things in their community and in the world. So what is it that you can do? And I want to give three uh, specific action items. It has to do, you can pray. We're Christians, right? So the answer is either Jesus or pray. You can pray. You can think about your purchases. And then I want to ask you to think about how it is that you treat people. Okay. So oftentimes when I'm talking about trafficking or slavery, people are like, what is it that I can do besides pray? And here's the thing. Actually, the most important thing that you can do is pray. Like, and I'm not just saying that because like, I'm in a church and like, like I really actually believe that. Prayer is the work of justice. There's a whole spiritual and invisible thing that's going on that's propping up this industry. And as much as human rights activists are trying to get rid of uh, and eradicate slavery, they're not gonna actually be able to do it without prayer because we know that there's spiritual strongholds and there's a spiritual dynamic that's actually going on. So prayer is the work of justice. And it's one of the most powerful things that you can do. Um, when I think about, you know, who are the most powerful beings in the universe? I'm a child of the 80s, so the answer is He-Man, right? He-Man is one of the most powerful beings in the universe. But actually, I think that praying grandmothers are the most powerful beings in the universe. I think they are the ones who are changing history and they are changing stories. It's praying grandmothers who are the most powerful. They're faithful and they do it every day. Karl Barth is this, uh, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of up, an uprising against the disorder of the world. I love, it, it paints prayer as a subversive act. Um, it's an it's a act of faith to stand against the disorder of the world. So to lean into prayer is to do several things at the exact same time. First is to declare that there is a different reality that exists beyond the concrete that we can see with our own eyes. So to pray is actually to declare that we recognize that there is a spiritual and invisible um, dynamic that is also real, uh, reality. Prayer also does another thing. A prayer, to pray is to affirm that God is a God who cares about his people, his creation, and his image bearers. Because you have to believe that to be true in order to pray. And then third, to pray is to declare that God is powerful and able to make changes in our world. 
Changes that seem impossible, changes to things that seem permanent and impenetrable. I don't know why. I don't know why God answers prayer. But I can tell you that, um, particularly in my work in fighting slavery, we have come across some crazy, crazy characters. Um, crazy folks who, like, they, they make, as I say to my kids, you know, they're, they're not bad. They make very bad choices. They make many, many, many bad choices, right? So we have, we have folks who are constantly tipping off when, um, when the police are going to intervene in a situation or, or people who just uh, make some really we have just run into some really terrible situations. And you come to a point where you go, we have done everything that we can humanly do, and the only thing we can do is pray. And so, um, but I have seen God respond to prayer in ways that I have been um, just shocked, uh, that there is a way that God truly uses prayer to break through. So for some reason, God has decided to answer and desires to answer. And there's something about that that gives him joy and something about us that he loves when we ask and we pray. Um, you know, my kids, uh, when, we, when we pray before our meal, they say, you know, thank you, Jesus, for food and family. Amen. Um, and sometimes I remember to say, Jesus, let this be the day that everyone eats. Um, and the reason that I pray that is because the UN has decided um, that actually there's enough food in the world for everyone to be fed. So we could get rid of world hunger. There is enough food. The problem is with distribution. The food tends to be concentrated in certain places. Um, and so it's, it's not that God has not provided enough food for his people, but it's that there's an issue with distribution. And so one of the things that I pray is that I pray, God, let this be the day. Today, let this be the day that everybody in the world gets to eat. And sometimes I believe that that's true. And in my head, I picture, you know, somebody finding a whole lunch in a, in a garbage can or something, untouched. Or I imagine some kids in Thailand finding a tree with all the fruit has been ripened. Um, and, and that's what spurs me on to pray. But I also have to admit that a lot of days I forget to pray that. I forget to pray. I don't remember to pray that prayer every day. Um, and I think... And so that's why I'm actually coming to you, to ask you to be people who pray. Because if I remember correctly, CLC is a church that prays. Um, I'm asking you to pray about the things that are breaking God's heart around the world. Because I don't remember to every day. Um, and there are some issues that are too big for me, and I just get caught up in my own small world. So that's where I'm asking you, that would you be people who would sort of commit to sort of say, you know, let this be the day that everyone eats. Lord, we pray that you'd bring an end to slavery. Um, human rights activists do think that slavery can be eradicated in our lifetime, but you and I know that that's actually not going to happen without prayer. Um, and if you need some inspiration, I think one of my favorite uh, inspirations is the story of the bringing down of apartheid and then the work of Michael Cassidy, and he set up this whole prayer network that was kind of the prayer um, spiritual story that went alongside the bringing down of apartheid. Prayer is the work of justice. So you can pray. But the other thing that you can do is you can think about the purchases that you make. What can you do with your lifestyle and with your purchases that can help take a stand against slavery? Um, a couple of years ago, we redid our kitchen. We live in a small 1940s house. Uh, it's this like colonial home, and it had the original kitchen in it from the 1940s. Um, and so when we were unpacking our boxes, we put our dinner plate into the cupboard, and then we couldn't close the door. Because apparently, um, like, modern dinner plates are, like, much bigger than, I guess in the 1940s, like, dinner plates were, like, this big. So, like, our kitchen was really, really small. So we redid our kitchen. Our kitchen remodel was really expensive. I was caught off guard. I had thought about the big things, appliances and, and other stuff. Um, but I had no idea how many doorknobs we had in that little space and how many hinges and uh, flooring. There's so many things that caught me off guard, and the thing just, it felt like it was a project that got more and more expensive. Suddenly, our contractor gave us some really good news. He said that the flooring that you want, I found something that's really, really similar, and it's at a quarter of the price of the other thing. I was like, great, let's do that, let's do that. That sounds fantastic. And then I had to stop, and I had to ask the question of myself, why is it a quarter of the price? I was like, shoot, I'm in human rights now. <laughs> I have to ask the question. So I went back to him and I said, I'm sorry. Can you tell me a little bit about the source of the stone for this? And the guy looked flabbergasted. He's like, what? And I said, well, like, can you tell me a little bit about like, the source of it? Because we care a lot about fair, um, 
fair wages for fair work and that sort of a thing. And I can tell you that even as I asked, my stomach was like dropping because I was like, oh, if he comes back and says that it's not, like we're gonna have to go back to that other, that other product that was so much more expensive. He went back and he, he asked, and he gave me kind of like a half answer. Um, the owner has gone, he has looked, the owner has no concerns, blah, 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 blah. So to be honest, I am not fully convinced about that product and about kind of the source of it. But the thing that I feel like is true is I feel like that owner, the next time he goes back, he's actually going to be thinking about something different. And if more and more people are asking questions like that, then actually people will go back. And one of the best ways to get some of these situations fixed is actually through, um, is through the companies that are present in those, in those places. So I would encourage you to ask questions. Ask questions about your suppliers. Ask questions from the people that you're buying things. Um, uh, one, of, one of the things that I find really helpful is a website called slaveryfootprint.org. So Slavery Footprint, and uh, that's the website up there. And it, it walks you through um, your, some of your daily choices, and it gives you an assessment of how many um, slaves might be involved in supporting your lifestyle. So I, it's an interesting exercise, at least to create some categories for like, oh, I had no idea that that touched here and there. In the workshop, we're actually going to do a little bit more work with the slavery footprint, um, and it's a great tool. But I think, if nothing else, it gives some awareness of how, for us in, in the United States, um, there's some ways that we can actually do things to, uh, to decrease the demand that's perpetuating human trafficking. Let me add one caveat. It is really easy to get paralysis in this. Right? So you can start thinking about your clothes, and then which stores can you buy from, and then wait, with that clothes, the cotton source, and you can just go, and then basically you can like end up living remotely, off the grid, and talking to no one, and like Jesus doesn't want you to do that. So the thing that I would say is maybe consider as a step thinking about one area of your life, and just being a little bit more intentional about that. Perhaps it's the clothes you buy, it might be the coffee you decide to drink, or the chocolate you decide to eat. It might be a couple of types of fish or seafood that you eat. I would just say, just choose a kind of one little area and sort of say, you know what, as a part of my discipleship, and as a part of my declaring that our God is a good God, I want to just be more intentional about this area and these purchases. If all of those things are feeling a little bit hard, here's something else that I would like to, to um, give as a third action item that you could do to fight trafficking and, and slavery in your everyday and it's a small act of rebellion that is standing up to slavery. You know, you, you hear these stories and you think, who are the kinds of people, the people who uh, to per perpetrate these kinds of crimes must be just, you know, terrible people and awful people. Um, but I would say those people are actually very, very similar to us. Uh, they're very, uh, and one of the things that allows them to exploit people in this way is that they don't look at people as people, they look at people and think of them as a thing. They look at people and think of them as a commodity. So are there ways that we might accidentally look at other people and think of them as things instead of as people? That is the one thing that makes a slave owner able to own somebody else, is their ability to ignore that that young child is made in the image of God. Unlike Volta, where I was in Ghana, when the team went out to rescue the boys off the boat, one of the first things that the social worker does is they give that boy a life vest. Now, I don't know about you, but my kids don't like life vests. They're bulky, they're uncomfortable, they stink a little bit. My kids don't like life vests. But the social workers, when they pull those boys off those fishing boats, the first thing they give is give them a life vest, and they put it over them and strap them in. And they did that intentionally because they wanted to say, your life is worth saving. We're not going to send you to the bottom and not care if you resurface. Your life is worth saving, and so we're giving you this life vest. They're affirming the made in the image of Godness of each of those boys, that they are valuable, that they are human, that they are image bearers of our God. So with your actions today, are there small things that you can do to affirm the made in the likeness of God of others? Um, is it the person who serves you food at the restaurant? Is it a way that you can treat them not as a server, but as a person? Eye contact. Thank you. Asking their name. Um, are there other people that we might be tempted to treat as things and not people? Perhaps it's the homeless person next to your BART station. Maybe it's the person who cleans the classroom after you all use it. Um, 
that person too is a reflection of God. So what does it mean to be kind, considerate, and thoughtful, to affirm their preciousness in the sight of God to people who others would say are invisible or are things? Perhaps there is something that that person understands about God that you do not yet understand about God. So what can you do to affirm the made in the image of Godness of people who might be different from you socially, economically, politically, racially? And I think given today's political climate, that's actually a pretty hard thing to do. How do we not demonize people who think differently? Human trafficking leads to distortions for the person who's being uh, exploited, leads to distortions for the person who is doing the exploitation, and also for society in general. Those who are caught in human trafficking, can make, can, it can be hard for them to believe that God is a good God. But they need to know, and we all need to know, that everybody was designed by our God to bear his image. So as a church, we can get involved in big and small ways. We can get involved in our prayers and in the ways that we're making purchasing and how, is, how it is that we are treating people. These things might seem small, but I think these are the small acts that are done in the present that have the ability to rebuild ruins and to set up new foundations for future generations. I don't know how that works. It seems totally illogical, but that is the great God that we serve. As I close, I'd like to pray for us the benediction of St. Francis. So receive the benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. And may God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen.